verse. Isaiah 54, verse 2. I want to speak to you this morning about preparing to prosper. Preparing to prosper. The writer says, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. It's tempting to really jump off in the deep end of the historical significance of this, and we ought to take that into consideration when we look at the context of the message naturally. Here is a picture of God as a husband uh, addressing his unfaithful wife, and uh, due to her sin, speaking about Israel, the nation has been divided. You would have thought that might have awakened them as to their need and the consequences of disobedience, but uh, nothing changed. In spite of that, they continue to sin against God, and then comes the, uh, the attack by the Babylonians, and they're carried off into captivity. It would have been a good time for God to say, you know, listen, I've put up with this long enough. And he could have retraced their history back down through the years and would have been more than just for him to just wipe them out entirely. But he does, well, he does what he does, and that's to be gracious. And here we see God assuring them that they would not be cast off forever, but that they would be restored and that they needed to get ready for it. Get ready to prosper. And so he's saying, I'm going to do something bigger. I'm going to do something better. But it's going to be something that will require something from you. You just can't sit back and wait for it to happen. I'm expecting something from you. And that's where he gives them the instructions here. And we need to take that into consideration as we're involved in the work of the Lord. And he tells them to enlarge their tents. Now, you know, we're not talking about a little pup tent or something that would be real easy to, to set up. We're talking about tents as they were made back in those days, made out of animal skins. And so you, you're talking about killing the animal. You're talking about preparing the hide and, and all of those things, the expense and the energy that's expended and all of those things to enlarge their tent, their place of habitation. At least was that was to be their habitation during that time, which was far better than being in bondage to the Babylonians. And so that's the picture. That's what's going on. As I was thinking about the message this week, I believe it was the day before yesterday, I ran across an article that just reached out and grabbed me by the throat because it was so disappointing. There was a survey called the Congregational Scorecard. It concluded, quote, most evangelicals are satisfied with how their church operates. And they go on to say that 77.5% are pleased with women in positions of leadership in the church. In other words, it's fine if you have a woman pastor. Now get this, only 27% of all of these churches wanted to see a greater focus on evangelism. Think about that, only 27%. We're talking about evangelical churches. Some naturally put us in the category, those that you know believe in reaching others for Christ. And we're talking about a lot of people that put a strong emphasis on, on being evangelical. Uh, that is, they claim that, you know, that they're in the business of winning people to the Lord, and yet only 27% of all of these people have any concern about that, think there needs to be any improvement. As a part of that study, there was the, what they call the generosity factor, and it said, quote, very few evangelicals even come close to a tithe. Think about that. It, few even come close to a tithe. 
We're talking about the Lord's church, the most important institution on the face of the earth. And to think about those that would hold back, rob God, and then expect God to bless them. That's exactly what's happening. Boy, if there was ever a time we needed a revival, it's today. I love what Vance Havner said about it many years ago. He said, we need a heart warming. He said, the early Christians did not need a shot in the arm every Sunday to keep them going. They knew Jesus. They upset the world, worried the devil, and gave wicked rulers insomnia, insomnia and, dread, and started something that the jails could not lock up and the fire could not burn and water couldn't drown and swords couldn't kill. And then, then he said, you may be little experienced, talking about our emotions, it's the danger of emotions, but we are suffering from a form of uh, Christianity that's dry as dust, cold as ice, pale as a corpse, and dead as King Tut. I, th I think he hit the nail on the head. And boy, how sad it is when you think about the condition of the church today. Amen. Now, again, we could just do a study on the nation of Israel this morning and stop there. But whenever you look at this verse especially, it's easy to see that there can be an application even to the church today. In fact, there is a principle here that I think in some way applies to every Christian. If you've never read the, the story of William Carey, you've missed a blessing. He's the man who is called the father of modern missions. And he brought together, as it were, uh, an army and, and uh, a crusade of Baptist churches, Baptist preachers, Baptist missionaries that was an awakening all of a sudden and, and launched a missions program contrary to all of the difficulties that he went through. And as a result of that, they called him the father of modern missions. He was born in Northampton, England, 1761. He worked as a shoemaker's assistant and had this burning desire to be a foreign missionary in the lands far away where they've never heard the gospel through private tutoring, by the time he was 22, he had learned Dutch, French, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. I mean, I couldn't learn all of that in, in 80 years, even if I tried. He went to a ministerial convention, all of the meeting of all of the preachers, and he presented to them his burden to reach those in the foreign lands and one of the old preachers there said, uh, quote, sit down, young man. When God sees fit to convert the heathen, he will do so of his own accord. Wow. Not much encouragement. And, and, and that's the way that that bunch of preachers felt. You know, if God's going to do it, he'll do it. He doesn't need you. and We don't need you trying to tell us what we ought to do. What a sad state of affairs that was. Then, on May the 30th of 1972, or 92, he was invited to preach at a Baptist Minister's Association in Nottingham. I feel quite certain this wasn't the same group, by the way. But here he is with all of these Baptist preachers, and he delivered that sermon that became famous based on the verse that I've just read and he divided his message into two parts, which is expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That became his motto. That became, you know, the, uh, the mission statement, as it were, that we are to expect great things from God. I mean, that's faith. We are to attempt great things for God. And all down through these years, that, that saying has has been repeated over and over and over again because all of this time during his, during his years as a missionary and trying to get to the missionary field, finally, finally he was able. It was not because he had a 
big mission board uh, supporting him is not because even the collection of different Baptist churches was uh, giving him enough money to survive on. He went and while there had to work. Uh, while he was there seeking to win souls to Christ, he translated the, the, the Bible into 44 language and dialects and he founded a college and developed several different grammars, dictionaries and other languages. In other words, he is preparing the way that he'll be able to reach these people. And now here we are over 200 years later and we're still focused on the work that he was doing back then. So I want you to think this morning about us. I mean, not what other churches ought to do, but what we ought to do by way of preparing ourselves to prosper, as it were, in the work of the Lord. And there's three things I want you to notice. The metaphor, first of all, that's what this is. It's a simple picture of a tent being enlarged. The word curtains there speaks about the canopy or the material that was used in the tent. And, and notice an important phrase here. He's, it says, spare not. That indicates that the tent is to be enlarged greatly, not just a little bit. And as you know, the, the Jews back in ancient times, whenever, let's say, the oldest son got married, and at the, if they were living in houses, they'd just add a room on. Now, keep in mind, the, about the worst thing that a woman could imagine in those days was to be without a child, to be barren. If she wanted anything more than everything, it was to have a child. It was an embarrassment to her to be childless. And here we see the Lord saying, I'm going to do something about that situation. It's time to enlarge your tent. And he says, and spare not. Just keep adding on rooms to it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to provide exactly what you long for. The thing that you've been longing for, I'm going to provide. Now keep in mind, Israel has been unfaithful. She's pictured as an unfaithful wife. And God says, I'm going to restore you. And I'm not going to just restore you by way of accepting you back. I'm going to bless you beyond anything that you could even imagine. Now, again, I say, while this is directed specifically toward Israel here today, it also speaks to our heart about our work. The purpose of Israel from the very beginning when God established that nation, its purpose was to glorify God. It, it speaks about the Jews being a light unto the Gentiles. Uh, they, they were not just existing on earth to look out for number one and to sit back and expect God to pour out his blessings, but rather God blessed them so they could bless others. That's exactly what we find about Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12. He was blessed so he could be a blessing. When we think about the church, we know as Paul tells us unto him, that's God, be glory in the church. That is the purpose of it. And since God is glorified through the church, through its ministry, through what it does, then God is pleased to bless the church. Sometimes we, we act as though God's holding out on us. God's cheating us. And, you know, he's letting us do all of this work, but he's not blessing. He's not adding anyone to the church. And so naturally we, we get discouraged. But that's the picture, the metaphor that is used here. But notice the mission. He says, enlarge and stretch forth. Think about that in regards to, to us as a church. And he says here, enlarge, enlarge. You know, I've been in some churches, I think I mentioned this last week, in several churches that, country churches usually, where 80% of the congregation was made up of one particular family. Yeah. And they liked it that way. Their mentality was, this is our church, don't be messing with it. And boy, if someone outside the family joined the church... They might accept them, but they held them at arm's length all of the time. And they dare not suggest anything that the family was against. How sad it is 
to think about people with that sort of an attitude. We ought to be concerned about the numerical growth of a church because every number represents a precious soul for which Christ died. That is important. But there's something in one sense that's more important than the number and attendance, and that's the ministry of a church. Let's suppose that we had 10,000 in attendance. I don't know where we'd put them. But if we had 10,000, well, let's suppose we've got a building big enough for 10,000. If we have 10,000, it wouldn't do one bit of good so far as God being glorified if nobody was actually serving the Lord. It, w it wouldn't do one bit of good. It'd be a whole lot better, you know, to have 100 people that love the Lord and that are serving the Lord. And, and I guarantee you that if we'll take care of our ministry, God will take care of the numbers. It's God that adds to the church. Amen. It's not what we do by way of getting out here trying to proselyte, uh, proselyte other people to come to our church. It's not the efforts that we make through our man-made programs and so forth. It's what God does. And when God sees a church ministering as it should, eventually, some way, someday, God's going to bless that church. The problem is... Too many times the churches get satisfied with the way things are. You know, they seem to forget the field is the world. The whole world. It's not just the area where the church is. Not just their location. It's not just Humble, Atascacita, and Houston. Our field, folks, is the whole world. You know, and we could send missionaries around the world, but if we don't do anything to reach those here in our area, we're not doing our job. I've known churches that get out of balance on this. Some of them would do almost anything for missionaries, and that's great. But they do absolutely nothing trying to win the people in their own community. They do nothing trying to win members of their own family. They're totally unconcerned about that. Then there are some who are only interested in their community. And usually it's all about the, being able to boast about how many they had in Sunday school. Oh, we had 1,000 or we had 2,000 or whatever it is. And, and I say that, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, I say that because they show no interest in foreign missions, even though the Lord said the field is the world, and they don't care about that. All they care about is making an impression by getting people, as many people as they can, to attend their services. And they don't have any qualms about how they go about it either, usually. That's why so many churches have fallen into the trap of entertaining people to death, as it were. Just absolutely doing anything to get people to attend. And I'm praying that God will do something that will enlarge our ministry, or ministries plural, however you want to look at it. That we'll be able to reach areas that we've never reached before, do things we've never done before. And I think a good example of that is, if you've ever read the verses there in First Chronicles, uh, Jabez, the prayer of Jabez. He's praying to the Lord, he said, enlarge my coast. In, in other words, he wanted a bigger chunk of the promised land, but he wanted the coastal area there. Now keep in mind... You, that might sound like he's just being selfish, but understand that whenever you have more, more is expected of you, and there was a great responsibility because he is incurring a responsibility now to protect that area that God gave him. It's his responsibility now to do the things to provide for those people that, that are there in that area. And, and our prayer ought to be, Lord, increase our coast. Lord, we want more so we can do more to serve you. We want to enlarge our tent, not just a little bit. We want it to be as large as it possibly can. Lord, we want to serve you in ways that we never have before, in ways that, that we've neglected, whatever it is. And that ought to be the desire of our heart. That is the means of it. You know, over the years, I think about I think about the great way God has used our Sunday school and our Wana 
clubs and different things and uh, as ministry, vacation Bible school and all of the different things we do. But do you ever stop and think about all of the things we could do that we're not doing? Think about that. People out there in jail that have never heard the gospel. Uh, people that are, are sick in the hospital or in nursing homes or wherever that need someone to minister to them, someone to share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the responsibility to do that. I have in a, in a notebook I keep in my briefcase a long list of, of ministries, ministries that we have had that stopped ministry possibilities things that we could be doing and you know and I didn't just write those down but I've looked at them and went over them and thought about the need of those ministries tried to figure out how we could best do it but listen we'll never do it we can we can start all of the programs we want but if we don't get down to having a desire to do it it's never going to work we could say, well, we're going to start this new ministry next week, but we're looking for a volunteer. And so some poor soul out there think, well, boy, I hate to see Brother Stone so depressed because we don't have anyone to do it. And, you know, somebody needs to, oh, I'll do that, Pastor. You know how long that'd work? Three or four weeks. It wouldn't last very long. It won't last very long unless we have a heart to do it. And we think about all of the things that we could do and the things that we should do. I'll tell you, I, for one, I'm praying that God will raise up some young pre... I don't care if they're young or old, but I'd like it better if they were young to have more time to serve on earth, but that he'd raise up some young preachers, whether they become pastors, missionaries, or whatever, but some young preachers. And by the way, the Bible tells us to do exactly that. That we're to pray that the Lord of Harvest will send, you know, men into, into the ministry. Ask yourself, how long has it been since you prayed, oh, dear God, would, would you please call one of our young men to the ministry? How long has it been since you prayed that earnestly? I don't want you to raise your hand. It'd probably be embarrassing because... A lot of times, you know, we might do that one time in the next 10 years, we don't ever do it at all. Let me try to illustrate, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way because as I've said so many times, I think this is the very best church anywhere in this area, and I don't hesitate whenever I say that, and we've got some wonderful people. Uh, but if we've got the idea that we are everything we ought to be, uh, then we've got a serious problem. And the Lord called me to accept the church there in Cincinnati. I was uh, meeting with men, went to preach in view of a call. They, they had invited me. I, I wasn't looking for a church. I'd preached in uh, at the missions conference in Rogers uh, in Garland, Texas, and a couple of the guys from the church, they were there, and so when they got back, they told the church they were looking for a pastor and said, you need to contact Brother Stone. So I went there, and uh, during the conversation with the public committee, they, they asked, uh, Brother Stone, if you're called as pastor, what, what would you like to see? What would you like to see God do? I said, well, I'll try to, I'll try to sum it up. I, I think maybe the m most wonderful thing I can think of is that that God would use this church to start another new church every year, one a year. Now, let me tell you, for that to happen, it's, I, I don't think I've ever known of a church that did that one church every year. But I was aiming big. I thought, well, we didn't make that. But in 10 years, we started five new churches. Five. One in Africa, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee. Five new churches. Now, I say that to say this, folks. I, 
and, and if anybody has failed at this, it's been me in not giving you the leadership that you deserve over the years. But looking back at the history of the church, unless I've missed something, there's been only one church in the history of this church ever started out of this church. Just one. And I want you to be praying that, that we'll do something about it. And here's, here's the method in regards to this ministry where he says here, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. Two things here. He says lengthen. And that is material is going to be added so the tent will be increased here. And these cords that hold it up have got to be lengthened. You can't use the same cords that you've been using because they're not long enough. And in the same way as a church, we need to be expanding and enlarging and think of that as a ministry and a responsibility. And whenever we, you know, try to use the old excuse by saying, well, you know, preacher, it's the, uh, it's the quality, not the quantity. You know, um, I, I don't know about you, but I think quality and quantity are both good. But the point is, if we're going to grow, something's got to be made stronger than what it is in order to support and sustain that particular ministry. And, and when you're thinking about a tent, you've got to have the stakes to be stronger that's going to enlarge it, and that's what he's saying here. You've got to lengthen it. You've got Make, make it longer now. And then notice he says, and strengthen. This is the other side of the coin. Because if a tent's going to be enlarged, it has to be anchored better. You, you can't use any little old peg on a, on a tent. I, when, I was a, when I was a boy, I'm going to say probably third, fourth grade, something like that. Right down the street in a wooded area, about halfway between the school, grade school, and my house, someone, a family, had got one of those old, um, I'm talking about big old uh, army surplus tents. They just kind of chopped out a path and made a clearing. They didn't even own the property, by the way. They had a bunch of kids back there. They didn't mingle with any neighbors. Nobody knew anything about them. But, I mean, they lived in that tent, uh, had dirt floors, and they lived in that tent. It's not the kind of tent that you would take camping, by the way. It's huge. And that requires a great deal of, uh, a great deal of preparation. And to think about if you go down to academy and say, I need some tent pegs, you, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get those little tent pegs about like that. You're driving the ground to hold up a, one of these real small four, six-man tent. That won't do it on what we're talking We're talking about tents that are large enough to be livable for a family and add on to it because you're going to be having a bunch of kids and you're going to need that area. So there has to be this strengthening here because if it's not anchored better, it's all going to blow away in a time of a storm. I say that because to be effective in whatever we do, we have to strengthen the base of operation or eventually it's all going to, all going to fail. We can't have a, a stronger church without stronger members. You and I, as members of the church, we make up the church body. And, and if a church is made up of all weak members, you're going to have a weak church. And so the degree of our success here is in direct proportion to the degree of our dedication, our commitment to do the work of God. And I'm praying that God will give us a vision. Remember the Bible says without a vision, people what? They perish. Without a vision, people perish. Now, I want to give you an example. Ask a question and end up with a warning. The example has to do with William Carey, and he expressed his heart for missions. When he did so, another person said, 
You are foolish to trouble yourself about ignorant people so far away. Why don't you stick to your business? And Carrie's response was, my business is to work for God. She said, I only make and mend shoes to pay my expenses. Now that's the example, but here's the question. What is your business? I mean, based on the manner that you live, based on the thing that you do and your attitude toward life, what is your business? I'm not talking about, you say, well, I, I, I work at Kroger, or I work at Walmart, or, or I'm an executive officer in a big corporation. Or I'm not talking about that at all. You might be employed at some place like that in order to support yourself and your family. But what is your business? It ought to be the same as Carrie's business, which is what? Is the work of the Lord. And we shouldn't let anything distract us from that. Now, God doesn't intend for every person to be a pastor or to go to some foreign country as a missionary. But God has a work for each and every one of us to do. For some of you younger folks, it might be your mission field is right there where you go, go to school. Doing what you can to reach your friends there at school. We say, well, I don't have any friends there. Well, that's a good place to start. Make some friends. You say, well, how to do that? The Bible says if a man's half friends, he must show himself friendly. Yeah. So the ball's in your court. Yeah. It's your responsibility. And we all have a responsibility as Christians to do what we can to win those that are lost. And when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he talks about the church, the body being made up of different members, that is exactly the way it is. And I, ha I have no idea what God would have you to do. It, I'm sure it's something entirely different than what somebody else does. And that's a good thing, by the way. We'd all be in a heap of trouble if everybody said, well, I'm called to preach and I want to preach next Sunday, you know. Well, there's a sense in which you can preach every week. And that is that you can deliver the gospel to other people in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever it is. But when we think about all of these ministries that could be started, that should, somebody needs to do that. There have been times where, you know, we've had different ministries where we reached out. And I thank God that the ministry over the villas is still going after all of these years. That, that, that is just a tremendous blessing. Thank God for that. wonder how many nursing homes, I wonder how many places like the villas, you know, senior living, how many there are just in, let's say, a 15 mile radius I don't have any idea but I can guarantee you that there is a work to be done there and I think back over the years some of the sweetest memories Bev and I have was working in nursing home ministries and getting to know those people and sitting and talking with them reading the Bible to them having a service for them singing and how their eyes would light up whenever you brought a child in there. There's something about something about a, a child that means so much to, to older people. And boy, their eyes would just light up if you had some kids there. I, I'm so thankful with some of these young men down here now. They're going to the villas. They're working in the villas. Thank God for that. But there's other places just like that that need someone to minister to those people. Now, let me leave you with this warning, and that is that if you make the work of God your business, now if you don't, it's going to cost you something, but if you do, it's going to cost you something. Whenever William Carey told his wife that he planned to go to India, she flat refused. I, I am not going. You got any idea how difficult it must be to be a preacher's wife? Because he's saying, look, God's calling me to go to India. And she's thinking, well, he didn't call me. 
You didn't tell me anything about it. But she said, no, I, I'm not going. And so uh, taking one of his sons, he left her with the other two in England. And he sailed for India. But en route, the ship was forced to turn back by enemy ships. They finally got back to the family, again trying to persuade his wife to go. She refused, so he said, well, I'm going back, and he left. He had walked about a half a mile whenever uh, one of his friends, ac actually more than a friend, somebody that was uh, helping him, uh, Dr. Thomas, who was assisting him in, in getting to India and getting the work going there. And, and he, he told Carrie, he said, look, I'm going to go back and I want to make one last plea with your wife. And he did. And this time she agreed to go. So they left as a family that day, never ever to see their native land again. That's not an easy thing to do. And only eternity will reveal the greatness of their accomplishments. But that commitment was costly. It wasn't an easy thing to do. When he gets there, he has to work to support himself. At the same time, he's got to learn the Bengali language because he doesn't know that. Then he has to translate the New Testament into their language so, you know, that they can learn. Then his, his son, Peter, died. A little while later, his wife, Dorothy, suffered a nervous breakdown from which she never recovered. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but it's unbelievable the cruel things that people said about that woman that was locked away in a room there at the home. She couldn't be controlled. And the cruel things that Christian people said about that woman is just amazing. And here William Carey is caught in the middle of this. His wife is there. He can't handle her. Nobody can. And he's brokenhearted about that. And she stayed there and finally passed away. All during this time, seven years has now passed, and he, it was seven years before he had his first convert. Seven years of denying yourself, depriving your family, going through all of these hardships, and your poor wife now that is broken down under the ministry. I had a dear friend, I won't even tell the, what area it was, but back in the area where I came from, whose, uh, whose wife had... Uh, had a ner nervous breakdown that she didn't get over and people wondered always why she wasn't at church and and he shared with me and I knew the reason why they didn't it's so easy to criticize people when you don't have any idea what they're going through seven years nobody saved wow you you might you might think you know I, I think I've made a mistake. It's time for me to head back to, to England. But nothing's being accomplished here. Well, he married again and his second wife died. A little while after that, his eldest son died. Here he is 41 years without a furlough. 41 years. There's a lot of the missionaries that think, you know, man, you know, I'm going to the mission field, but, but every two or three years, I'm going to come back to the States and visit all of the churches. He had a different attitude. His attitude was God sent me there to work there, to minister there. He wasn't going back to, to, to deprive himself of the blessing of being able to serve God there. Two of his favorite quotes. He said, I once was young and now I'm old. But not once, but not once have I been witness to God's failure to supply my need. When first I had given for the furtherance of his work, he has never failed 
in his promise. So I cannot fail in my service to him. I tell you, I, I can identify with, with some, I, I feel like I dare not fail. And over and over again, I've often wondered what it would be like, you know, to be in Bev's situation as a preacher's wife and to hear me, to hear me say, you know, I'm never going to retire unless it's, I'm just forced to. And not one time has she ever, ever suggested that I ought to. She always said, you're the only one that knows, you know, that, that that's the decision that you have to make. And I look around and I think about what God has done. Think about how I was brought up as a boy. The house that we lived in didn't have any concrete streets in that area back then. I remember when they started pouring concrete and paving some of the roads, but we just had old gravel roads where I lived, even though it was in town. Linoleum on the floors that had uh, holes in it. Old kerosene burning stove and all of that. And then sometimes I just look out the window and look around at what God has provided for us there at the house. How dare I fail him when he has never, ever failed me? Carrie said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. You know, that's exactly what a lot of people are doing today. They think of themselves as a success because finally, you know, they've got their income up to a certain level. Or finally, they've accomplished something they've always dreamed of. They've done something that others admire about them. But they're majoring on minors. They are a success at things that really don't matter whenever it comes to eternity. Now quickly, I'll, I'm going to close, I promise. But listen to this because there's another verse I want you to notice. It's over in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse number 20. I, I don't know that we've got to read it. But, uh, but anyway, it speaks much about the situation in regards to tents. God's speaking to Israel now. And he says in verse number 20, this is Israel, the prophet, my tabernacle is spoiled and all of my cords are broken. My children are gone forth of me and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. Now here you see something exactly the opposite of what we've been talking about because this is describing the awful condition of Israel's suffering as a result of the Babylonian invasion. And this is a pitiful picture of what sin can do in a person's life. But the good news is, as our text in Isaiah 54 shows, that God was planning on restoring Israel. Now let me wrap it up. If you study the history of what all went on there, you'll see that God gave the promise to deliver them from Babylon. Now can you imagine those people in Babylon, they've been separated from their family all of this time. Some of them subjected to hard labor and so forth. And finally God, to put it on the heart of the king, to let them go back. You can return to Jerusalem. Wow. That's what they've been wanting all of this time. Here's the opportunity. God paved the way. Nothing's stopping them now. And you know what a good number of those folks did? They said, no. We're just going to stay here. Can you believe that? That now they're, they're just going to go ahead and keep living in Babylon. They don't even want to go back. And evidently they doubted that Jerusalem could ever be restored to its former glory in spite of the things that God said. 
And folks, that, I, I mention that because that's exactly where a lot of folks are. God has given us exceeding great and precious promises, but God requires something from us, and that something He requires is commitment. To obey his word, he said, make the tent bigger, not just a little bit, make it a lot bigger. Lengthen the cord, strengthen the stakes, because I'm getting ready to do something wonderful. And I can, I can imagine in my mind somebody saying, well, I hear what you're saying, but boy, that sounds like a lot of work to me. And that's what these people had decided when they stayed in Babylon. Uh, we're just going to stay here. And there's a lot of folks that have said so much as to tell the Lord, you know, I, I've gone this far, but I'm not going any further than that. If you're, if you're unsaved today, and I know I've been speaking to Christians about us enlarging the ministry of this church, which takes uh, each one of us as members being willing to do more. There just might be someone here today that's never trusted Christ as their Savior. And I want you to think about this. Think about the promises that God has given to His children. Think about the things that He has done for them. And whenever you have the attitude that, preacher, I, I've heard all this before. I've attended church for years. I I know we're supposed to be saved, and I know you say there's a real place called heaven and a real place called hell. Yeah, I've heard all of that before, and yet you still doubt in your heart what God has done, what God has provided. I want you to think about a couple of things. Number one, I want you to think about the fact that God would not just allow, but demand that his children, his own family, demand from them the sacrifices they went through. Go back to the book of Acts and you think about those that were required to forsake everything for God. Those that were tormented and persecuted and imprisoned and martyred. Those are God's people. And even from the <coughs> very beginning of Paul's ministry, he showed him what great things he must suffer. A lesser than Paul might have said, you know, maybe God didn't call me into the ministry. God wanted him to know right up front, you're going to suffer. There's a cost involved in this. And you think about, you think God doesn't love you? Look at what God's willing to do for you by subjecting his own children to this great suffering. And then most of all, I want you to think about the gift of God's Son. You think God doesn't care about you? Just look at the price that Jesus paid. The horrible suffering that he went through on the cross. And like the song says, he did it all for you. There wasn't one thing about us that made us worthy of what God has done. Nothing. Nobody is earning their way with God. It's all due to grace. By grace are you saved through faith. Faith. Just simple childlike faith. Just believing that God will do what he promised he would. That ought to move anybody to action. You would think that. You know. I don't understand it all Lord. But I, I, I don't think you're lying. I believe what you're saying. And I'm going to receive your son as my savior. Would you trust him this morning? If, if you've already trusted him, maybe this morning you might have to say as a Christian, Lord, I'm sorry. There was a time whenever I was growing spiritually, I was working for the Lord, involved in ministry. In some way or another, over time, I just attend church and listen to sermons and Sunday school lessons. That's all I do anymore. That's so sad. Now, if that's all a person could do, that's one thing. 
But I believe there's something all of us can do, whether it's by way of prayer or whatever it is. There has a, there's a work for every single child of God. And I say that because if that wasn't true, you wouldn't even be here. God has a purpose in you being on this earth. And that's to glorify Him by obeying Him. And in obeying Him, we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that enables others to, to be impressed by what God's done in our life. And they'll open their heart and listen to the gospel. And we dare not ever give up just because our labor seems in vain. It's just a matter of time. Until God blesses us beyond even what we can imagine. Amen. Will you be praying with me about the ministry of this church? And God using us. God leading us, guiding us, showing us. That I want you, to, I want you here's a need out there. I want you to meet that need. And us praying that God will send the right people to the right places. To meet those needs. And I believe he'll do that. If we really get concerned about it. Tim if you would come. And we're going to extend the invitation. Father. Lord we can't even begin to imagine. Or think about. Measuring the greatness of your love. It's so far beyond anything. That we can understand. But Lord. Neither do we doubt. The greatness of your love. Even though we can't comprehend its depths, we are sure beyond any shadow of a doubt because you proved it in the giving of your Son. You proved it, Heavenly Father, your concern for this world by subjecting your own children to great suffering for the sake of getting the gospel message to the entire world. Lord, we thank you for this church and the way that you've blessed it. Thank you, Lord, for each and every member here. But I pray that today that you'll speak to all of us. Lord, that each and every one of us might envision what you could do, what you would do, if we'll only make ourselves available and commit ourselves that if we will expect great things from you and then attempt great things for you, we know we would never fail if we do that honestly wholeheartedly bless us now this morning and meet the need of each and every person in Jesus name Amen